This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In Matthew 5.48, our Lord said, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Passages such as these have sometimes led to two responses, to redefine perfect so that it means almost perfect, or to despair of ever reaching the goal and giving up. There have always been versions of Christian perfectionism in the Christian church, whether in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, or in the 13th century, in the 16th century, in the 18th century in the person of John Wesley, and in the 19th century in the higher life or Keswick movements. These movements have often suggested that it is possible for believers to achieve entire sanctification in this life. The higher life movement associated with Robert Pearsall Smith in the 1870s was so influential in England and in Germany and in the Netherlands that it even persuaded Abraham Kuyper of its truth for a period of about three years. And if it could influence Kuyper and many others, it's also possible that we, too, have been influenced by these ideas. But Kuiper, with B.B. Warfield at Princeton Seminary, came to reject these ideas and returned to the historic and traditional and even confessional Reformed understanding of the nature of the Christian life and the struggle with sin. In Season 5 of Office Hours, we're talking about the biblical teaching and the Christian doctrine of sanctification, new life in the shadow of death. Joel Kim is here to help us understand the biblical and Christian teaching about perfection and perfectionism. Joel is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He co-edited and contributed to Always Reformed, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, which is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. He's a dear friend and a frequent guest on Office Hours. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Well, we're talking about sanctification this season, and today we're talking about perfection and perfectionism. As you know, Scripture does tell us to be perfect, and some have concluded, as we'll see later in this episode, that in fact it is possible to reach what some have called entire perfection or entire sanctification or state of Christian perfection whereby we no longer sin in this life. And that idea has been powerfully influential, particularly in various forms of evangelical Christianity and in other forms, even in forms of liberalism rooted in Germany in the 19th century. So, can we reach perfect sanctification in this life? And who are some of those who have said that we can achieve perfect sanctity, perfect holiness in this life? I think the person who can answer the latter part of that question better is you, actually, Scott. But the first part of the question, the short answer to the question, can we reach perfection in this life? I think the short answer is no. Scripture never refers to believers as reaching perfection or perfect sinlessness before the point of glorification. And not only does it not refer to Christians reaching that state, it speaks of the opposite. We see examples of Apostle Paul himself speaking in multiple places of his own 
own various struggles with his sinfulness. And then, in fact, the Apostle John in 1 John speaks to the very issue of the Christian church and their denial of sin. It seems that some, perhaps with overrealized eschatology, thought that they had this ability not to sin anymore. And the Apostle speaks clearly and very directly to that issue, questioning the denial of sinning in this world and the ultimate consequence such denial brings for a believer. And I think the Confessions rightly summarize, therefore, the teaching of Scripture in this regard, especially in its description of sanctification. In chapter 13 in particular, it speaks in second paragraph, the sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. And I think that's a good summary of what Scripture teaches. We're going to come back and look in a bit at some comments by Abraham Kuyper in his work, The Work of the Holy Spirit, but he uses a very interesting expression that I think might be helpful as we try to navigate this, that the Christian is, he says, quoting here, perfect in parts, comma, imperfect in degrees. And the analogy that he's using is the analogy of human development. When an infant is born, all things being equal, child has his eyes, ears, nose, arms, legs, and so he has all his parts, and yet that child is not fully grown. What do you think of that as a way of accounting for what Scripture says about sanctification? If the analogy is drawn as a means to describe the progressive nature of sanctification and that it's organically developing over a period of time, I think it's an apt description of how perhaps we can understand the development of sanctification in the individual. But like all analogies and not giving greater thought to perhaps the details of how that can be actually pursued, I think we can simply say it seems to be a reasonable one without being conclusive about it. There has been, as we suggested earlier, a long history, and as you indicated, it begins already in the apostolic period. There's been a long history in the Christian church of people who have suggested that we can achieve a life of utter sanctity before glorification and before the return of Christ. Among those, we could begin with Pelagius who said that sinless perfection was at least theoretically possible in this life. Some of his followers headed in that direction as well. They're sometimes known as semi-Pelagians. In the 13th century, there was a movement in the Western Church known as the Albigensians, and they're often credited with teaching a kind of perfectionism in this world. In the 16th century, some of the Anabaptists taught perfectionism, notably Caspar Schwenkfeld, who gets cited all the time by Protestants, Reformed people in particular, in the 16th century. And then in the 18th century, John Wesley is famous for teaching a version of entire sanctification or Christian perfection. In almost all those cases, there's one thing that tends to unite them in their view that we can reach entire sanctification, and that's the downplaying of sin or the effects of sin. They all admit typically that we sin although Pelagius said that it's possible that we might not sin at all ever in this life since we're born as Adam, and if we simply make use of the natural resources we have, we don't have to fall. That was his view. But most of the rest of the church has said that we are in Adam, and when he fell, we fell, and so they concede sin. But there have been movements throughout the whole history of the Western Church to downplay the effect of the fall. Help us think through that biblically. 
you know, there may be a lot of factors why one comes to the conclusion of entire perfection, or at least some variation of that theological idea. And I, I would imagine that there are both historical factors as well as theological factors that lead one to conclude such ways. I would think that there are a couple things that seem true of these movements that we can say about their theological understanding. And I think you sum it up well in pointing to sin. I think perhaps we can divide further by saying, on the one hand, they think less of God and his perfection than I think is warranted from Scripture. One thing that we're recognizing in terms of the descriptions like this, especially when it comes to, let's say, Matthew 5.48, which you introduced at the beginning of our broadcast here. I wasn't aware of this quotation until you brought it up to me, at least in saying that the word teleoi there in Greek doesn't have to mean flawless or spotless. Rather, it means complete. Therefore, it is possible to be perfect without being entirely free from sin. Now, what's interesting about that statement is that that particular verse subsequently follows with a comparable. And the comparable is the perfection that is found in God. And what's intriguing about that statement, I think, is that it's indicative of not only our present generation, but Christians and non-Christians alike having a perspective of the perfection of God that perhaps is far less than what Scripture seems to indicate about the perfection of God. That for us to even begin to imagine somehow that it's cogent to argue that we can be perfect yet sinful, and then compare that to the perfection of God, seems incomprehensible, at least in the mind of the early church and those writers of the New Testament. I think corollary to that is we think much of ourselves. I mean, not only do we think less than what Scripture says about God, we think much of ourselves in such a way that perhaps we don't come to recognize the sinfulness in which we find ourselves, and just as much the pervasive nature of this sin, and in fact the unshakability of this sinfulness, that somehow that we on our own, or perhaps even spirit wrought, can reach the perfection before glory, uh, the state that we understand God to possess, seems to be a a bit of self-exaltation that I, I don't think Scripture ever even alludes to. Like you said, we are born in sin, we continue in sin, and even with redemption, we continue while our positional direction with God has changed. We are indeed child of God. We are indeed saved and forgiveness of sins have been given. We are indeed now stand without condemnation. No doubt those things may be true, but yet we still live in on this side of glory, recognizing the fact that while we have one foot in heaven, we still have the other foot in this world. And until we reach that perfect glory, we're going to have this kind of dual nature within us, continuing to struggle with sin on this side. And I think this is why we use complicated and cumbersome phrases like already and the not yet to describe the kind of Christian state that many of us are in. So without being definitive, I mean, this is not my area of expertise by any means, but one thing we can say is that such theology, I think, stems from, on the one hand, a shortcoming in our understanding of God, or at least we think less of God than he actually is in Scripture, and we think much of ourselves contrary to what Scripture teaches. I think those are two very contributing factors to such theological ideas. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. As you're talking, I'm thinking of two different books. One, R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. And that book was for a lot of evangelicals when it came out, and I think it continues to be for a lot of evangelicals, a real bombshell. It had great effect on me as well, no doubt about it. Well, describe what it was like for you to read that book. 
you're at an impressionable age when you're in high school and college. Those days are a lot further away than I, I wish it would be. But if you're at a stage where you think you know much more than you actually do. Forgive me for many who are listening who are perhaps younger listeners. And you have a certain grasp of theology that you think you know much more than you do. And having grown up in a confessionally reformed church setting with a father who's a minister, I was catechized from fairly early on. And so you have this understanding that you've gotten all these things right. And then you read a book such as The Holiness of God, and it rattles you in some way. It rattles you because you come to grips with the fact that you don't know as much as you think you do. And then the very God that you believe in is much bigger than you ever imagined him to be. I know that sounds overly simplistic, but what Sproul does in that book is that he traces the biblical teaching of God's perfection, his moral perfection. And what it does is that it puts a mirror to our face for us to come to recognize our imperfections and our shortcomings. Very similar to reading in the experience of, let's say, Mortification of Sin by John Owen and how he goes through our own state in a different way, not just in terms of comparing it to the standard by which we ought to be measured, by then also exposing our own sinfulness. Those were a couple of the books that were very formative in coming to greater recognition of my own personal sinfulness and the depths of sin that I've fallen into, but also just recognizing the grand perfection, unreachable perfection on my own that God himself exhibits as taught throughout Scripture. The God of Scripture is, particularly in the Hebrew Scriptures, but even in the New Testament as well, revealed to be a holy, consuming fire. We know that from, if nowhere else, from the history of his dealings with Israel. Someone steals gold and hides it, buries it in the ground, and terrible things happen. God says to Pharaoh, let my people go, and he wreaks havoc on Egypt. And in the New Testament, we're called to worship God, and the imagery in Hebrews, for example, is God at Sinai. He's a consuming fire. Why do we have such trouble with that notion of God? That's a difficult question to ask, I would imagine. That theology... Perhaps we just don't have the ability to grasp something beyond ourselves. I tend to think, and I might myself included in this example, that we create an image of God at times that's based not upon the teaching of Scripture, which seems difficult to comprehend fully that God is entirely set apart and God is morally perfect. Such conceptions seem at least theoretically possible, but as we imagine what that might look like, I would imagine that our own imaginings and our personal perceptions and subjectivity it kind of dominates the way we think. I mean, I, I think the same thing can be said about any of the descriptions of God. When we refer to God as Father, uh, here we start immediately attributing to God factors of human fatherhood. When we think of God as being someone who is eternal, we, I think, tend to, both theologically and humanly speaking, start imagining from the perspective of our own subjective experience. I don't want to over-psychoanalyze any of these issues, but when you ask why, I, I wonder if part of it has to do with just our natural way of thinking about the reality around us. We see it primarily based upon our own place, placing ourselves at the center of our even our own thinking, and we imagine God, and you know, there are conferences that take place talking about reimagining God. Well, we imagine God according to ourselves, and holiness from our conception sometimes seem beyond our comprehension, and we try to create an image of God that's based not upon what Scripture teaches of itself, of himself, but more or less creating image that is based upon our own experiences. Again, who knows why that may be the case, but I do think
think that there is a lack of grasp and appreciation of the perfection of God and the holiness of God in our present day for sure. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness? Watch Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, via live streaming video on your computer or mobile device. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014, wscal.edu slash conference 2014. As a church historian, I have always believed that the confessions of the Reformed churches are the best summary of biblical teaching, and I continue to believe that, and I think our seminary is strongly committed to that. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We are increasingly in an evangelical world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and the wisdom of the fathers, the best students of Scripture in the history of the church, are encapsulated for us in the confessions, and we need to preserve that and know that and enthusiastically serve with a commitment to that. And I think it's a commitment that is more needed in our time than it's ever been needed. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Don't you think that the God who is often presented to Christians and to non-Christians by Christians is often not really the God of Scripture, or at least it's not a fully orbed portrayal or representation of God. The God who is presented in a lot of contemporary worship is a friendly God. He's a God who wants to help you. He's a God who's here to facilitate you. I mean, Mike Horton wrote an entire book about this, Christless Christianity, right? The God of moralistic, therapeutic deism. And certainly that helps to create a climate in which it's very difficult to envision a God who flooded the world that then was. Yeah, there's an interesting little um, exercise we do in Greek 3, which is a word study that we do on a word that commonly translated propitiation. And here, propitiate is to turn away the anger of God to those who are offending parties. And one thing that's interesting is that if you go through the technical lexicons, which is a fancy way of saying dictionaries, there is a particular lexicon that actually advocates for the translation of expiation, which deals with a blotting out of sinfulness in us. And its explanation is an interesting one where it says, and I'm paraphrasing here, something to the effect, because the God of the New Testament is always on our side and for us. That is to say, at least from the editors of this particular lexicon, uh, we have a certain theological perception of God, and God cannot be wrathful or angry, requiring that wrath or anger to be turned away. At least seems to be the implied theological application that they're placing in a something that seems quite technical, that is, a lexicography of doing word studies. I think that thought process is probably pervasive. Again, all the factors or symptoms that lead to these kind of a way of thinking about God, we can discuss, I would imagine, ad infinitum. But there is this thought that somehow the God of love peace, kindness, all those things that none of us, or at least I don't think you and I would deny, really are the only descriptors of who God is when a full or picture of God from Scripture is much more big, or at least bigger than I think what we imagine it to be. These are projections of ourselves, more or less, rather than a projection of what Scripture teaches about so God. So sanctification, in its progressive aspect, is the process of 
putting to death the old man and being made alive in the new. And we talk about that as mortification and vivification. And perhaps nowhere else is this more clearly discussed, or at least extensively, the interior Christian struggle between the old man and the new, the flesh and the spirit. And we'll let you explain what that means in a minute, than in Romans 7. And that's a place where you have spent a lot of time over a number of years. So maybe this is a good time and place to turn to Romans 7 and look at the way that Paul describes the Christian struggle there. Help us get oriented. When Paul says things like spirit and flesh, old man, new man, help us to understand what does that mean as we get into this. Because you spend a lot more time in it, I think it makes you feel less certain about some of the teachings of various things. It just means that you come to recognize that there can be a variety of opinions. And I want to state on the outset that there are definitely different opinions that are presented for us that have large following. In fact, the position that I personally hold will be considered in many circles to be a fairly minority view. But in that, there have been arguments that says, uh, for many the listeners, I'm sure this passage is fairly familiar, who argue that this is actually a pre Christian Paul, that this refers to Paul who is a not regenerate and talking about the state in which he was struggling with his sinfulness in verses 13 through 25. Others will argue that this is not about Paul at all, that this is not an autobiographical reference, but simply a hypothetical one, referring to various stages, whether it be an individual or perhaps even a whole entity or an institute. A more, I think, interesting interpretation is done by one of our colleagues here, Dennis Johnson, recently working through in great detail the redemptive historical interpretation, which has a lot of merit for us to consider as well. I do believe that this is autobiographical, and I also do believe that this is referring to Paul's own struggle as a believer. Now, in saying this, just a caveat. I think where many of the different interpreters agree is the placement of this passage in Romans chapter 7 needs to be uh, paid attention to. That is to say, the point of Romans chapter 7 is really not anthropology necessarily. That is to say, he's not sitting here trying to say, you know what, I'm going to build a whole case of how human condition is from this passage. It's exemplary more than anything else. In fact, the main focus of chapter 7 is the progression that Paul has been making thus far. That is, that in chapter 7, he wants to articulate that the law is impotent to sanctify. The law cannot sanctify. And I think that seems consistent with the overall argument of Romans. That is, before he was trying to argue that the law cannot justify. And that was the focal point that he paid attention to in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Well, the I think the idea in chapters 6, 7, and 8 is the fact that the law also cannot sanctify. The common notion seems to be that if you are justified by faith, that somehow you are sanctified by the law. But the perspective that Romans provides for us is the fact that not only are you justified by faith, you are sanctified by faith. And that the law cannot sanctify us despite its spiritual nature. And that's the whole point, isn't it? That he wants to point out, and this is interesting, some people will say that Paul is being contradictory here, but he begins by pointing out the law is spiritual. He doesn't want to deny the positive nature of the law as a reflection of the very character of God, but to depend upon the law for one's both justification and sanctification is misplaced trust that the law cannot sanctify. And what he does is to simply say, look, what happens to the law for those of us who are sinful is the fact that the sin overtakes the law, and law, which was meant good for us, becomes the very agent by which death is produced in us. 
Therefore, as we speak of sanctification, what chapter 7, as an example given by Paul, seems to provide for us is the very fact that the law, just as much as it cannot justify, it cannot sanctify. And to present that example, I think he found the example of himself to be not only very poignant and direct, he also points to himself as a regenerate to be the appropriate example of the impotency of the law to sanctify as he describes the inner struggle that he faces on a regular basis. That certainly seems to be what Paul says in chapter 7, beginning in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now, there Paul's not saying that the Ten Commandments no longer norm the Christian life. He's not freeing us from the binding character of the Ten Commandments or the moral law as the norm for the Christian life. But he's saying that we're no longer under the law for acceptance with God, right? And then, as you say, the law itself lacks power to sanctify us. It's the gospel, it's Christ, it's the Spirit that sanctifies us. Am I getting close? Yeah, he wants to point out, and he doesn't want this to be understood, especially in light of the audience that he's dealing with, that the law is unilaterally bad. That's not what he's trying to point out here. The law is good. In fact, he describes the reason he came to fully recognize his sinfulness through the law. And then he describes the spiritual nature of the law. But yet what he wants to emphatically point out, as he has done so early in the chapters of Romans, is the fact that the law is not the means by which one is therefore sanctified. And in order to see the effect of the law in the hands of sin, in verses 14 through 25, he describes what that looks like in the individual. The law, while intended for good, and law, while it is spiritual, in the hands of sin, it can be turned against that individual, producing in them not life, not greater holiness, but rather the opposite is, I think, what he's trying to get at. Because the state of the believer that he wants to describe for us in chapter 7 is what he seems to summarize in the second half of verse 25. He says, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And in that, he's describing the kind of duality that exists in the individual, the kind of inner struggle, the old man and the new man, right? The inner man that's struggling, having been brought into a new state as a believer, now he is the prime example to show because now he's able to know God, delight in the law, but yet continue to struggle with the kind of sins and sinfulness that exist and resides within. Now, whether you believe that Romans chapter 7 describes that state for a believer or not, because I'm perfectly aware that there may be many listeners who may disagree with the perspective that Romans 7 deals with a believer, and in that Paul in particular. But yet nobody can deny the kind of struggle that believers do have that is described at chapter 7. In fact, Paul refers to this in Galatians chapter 5, 16 and on with similar notion of the kind of struggle that believers themselves have. That here, while you're placed into a new state, new relationship with God, 
it doesn't mean that you've reached somehow the glorified state. And I think that's what the concern for some that Paul has, that some people have, on the one hand, an underrealized eschatology, that is, they come to not recognize their newfound state in God and that they overplay their sinfulness, and they do not understand the confidence and the joy and the kind of preservation that is found in God. We can see that uh, not only in Scripture, but in the lives of many. But at the same time, the overrealized eschatology, that somehow, because you're in this new state, that somehow negates both the reality of residual sin and the responsibility of ongoing desire to eradicate this sin— seem to be concerns that Paul wants to put aside, because that's not true of us, that our lives will not only scripturally but experientially marked with futility, corruption, the fall and the effects. Until the moment when we are fully glorified, those miseries of sin will be a part and a mark of the reality of the world in which we live. And in that, that is true not only of the world around us, but that is true of us as believers, that we, uh, while we are placed in a new place with God in Christ Jesus, we are called saints because God sees us through the lens of the blood of his Son. But yet, in terms of who we are subjectively and experientially, until the day we meet Christ face to face, we will be under this struggle the already and the not yet, the inner man, the old and the new man fighting against one another. And that's true not only of Scripture's teaching, but subjectively in many of our experiences as well. In 7.13, he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know, verse 14, that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, some people stop there and they say, well, no Christian could say that. This must be Paul speaking as if he were not a Christian, or as Pelagius said in the 4th and early 5th centuries, Paul here is adopting a persona. And as Arminius also, I think, adopted a similar view that Paul is adopting a kind of persona here. But 15 says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate— So if someone says to me, well, the man speaking in verse 14 couldn't be a Christian, I say, well, the man speaking in verse 15 has to be a Christian, it seems. Now he says in 16, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, which goes back to the earlier point you were making. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, we're following the ESV here. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So help us work through what this section, as Paul describes this struggle between what seem to be these two principles within himself. 
Let me reiterate what I began earlier in terms of pointing out Paul's agenda here is to point out the positive nature of sin and its ineffectiveness when it comes to one's sanctification, that the law cannot sanctify. Only through faith can we grow in our sanctification. Here, the balance of evidence is what's being discussed and sometimes is very difficult. That is, on the one hand, as I was saying earlier, that I do think verse 25 in the second half is a culmination and a conclusion. That is to say that having argued this case of an example of someone who is divided in this way, he cries out in verse 24 of his state of the wretched man that he actually is. And verse 25, first half, now gives due credit to God as the one who can rescue him, saying thanks be to God. Yet at the end of that discussion, he talks about this kind of duality that resides within. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And I think that's the primary lens through which we see the rest of the passages that came before it. And in that, what you see are some factors that indicate to us that Paul seems to be referring to himself and a regenerate self at that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Yeah, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, which leads to 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? our cards are stacked here because I think you and I are on the same end of things in our interpretive ideas, because I do agree with you that the repeated repetition of the divided self-imagery of the inner man within me, and we see this in multiple verses, by my count, 17, 18, 20, 22, the question that has, I think, nagged many theologians and interpreters in the past is, can such state be found among those who are unbelieving? And the very fact that such exists, I think, leads to what is, to me, an agreeable conclusion of Calvin that Paul is drawing an example of himself because it seems to fit. I mean, such struggle with law, which is good, versus sin, such a description of that struggle is only possible he argues, within the life of a believer. So such a distinction between the inner man and then the struggles that's found in their inner man seems to indicate this to be a description of Paul's regenerate self. Now, you alluded to earlier the difficult passages, and no doubt about it, no one wants to sweep this under a rug and say these are not difficult. I mean, not the least of which is verse 14 when he's talking about flesh and soul under sin, and also verse 18 when he comes to say there's nothing good that lives in me. These are not easy passages for us to work with. But I guess a couple things I can say is, on the one hand, I think the overall thrust of the passage seems to articulate a certain perspective of Paul's regenerate condition that has to dictate how we deal with the details. And in this case, I think the verse 25 and the overall inner being issue does seem to dominate here in this passage. And two, one thing I think that all of us would acknowledge, and this is why I want to go back to the point made earlier, that even if you disagree with me on this passage, passage as a description of a regenerate believer. I think this is an accurate description of Paul's understanding of Christians already and not yet state elsewhere, like in Galatians 5. So even if you disagree with the details of what I just say, it doesn't undermine the overall condition of a believer pre-glorification that Paul seems to have in mind. In that, some of these difficulties is we come to recognize that this fleshliness, when we become a Christian, doesn't disappear. 
it doesn't somehow become eradicated. The continuity of our own living in the world as we know it now, in this evil world, as Paul describes it. And not only that, exhibiting those elements of this world, fallen, mortal, what's that, filled with misery and the after effects of sin, are not things that somehow disappear in our lives post-Christ. We call it already in the not yet just for that reason that Paul seems to have in mind that suffering, misery, and death will mark our days until we come to see the living Lord. And this is why he points out to the believers over and over again, he rejoices in suffering, coming to recognize that one day there will come that time when we will be removed from that state. And I think what he is saying here, Paul in particular, that indeed, as we have become regenerate, we still have residuals of fleshliness, and that our body, as well as our inner being, continues to wrestle between that which knows what is good, that which knows the standards and demands of God, yet that which still revels in, resides in, rejoices in those things that are fleshly on this side of glory. And I think that rightly depicts Paul's intention to show this kind of odd state that we find ourselves in. We are in Christ, we are saints, children of God, sins forgiven, with preservation guaranteed. Yet, we are still fleshly in many ways who we are. We continue to sin, we continue to wrestle with sin. But I think Paul's perspective is the very fact that we wrestle with it, and not just simply accept it, is an indication of a regenerate person. And two, furthermore, that this kind of state is a good example to provide in better understanding how the law is impotent to sanctify. The law cannot, all it can do is to command us to do, but yet because sin still resides in us, we cannot live up to what the law demands. So just as much as pre-regenerate state, we cannot live up to what the law demanded in order to be saved, post-regenerate state, we cannot live up to the demands of the law in order for us to be perfect as God demands us to be. And I think that's the state that Paul describes here and in Galatians 5 as well. Now, we can debate in great detail the word flesh, sarx in Greek in particular. We won't get into that here except to say that sarx, which is a pejorative terminology, has been used with believers elsewhere as well. Now, that, that doesn't answer all the word study questions, but it does indicate this kind of state in which believers are in pre-glory. And I think that's the particular struggle that we have in trying to understand the kind of struggle that Christians usually experience in their lives. As a matter of history, as we begin to draw this discussion to a close, is it true that the view that you have been articulating, and Calvin's view, is the dominant view until the modern period? I only laugh because, you know, from our circles, when we mention Calvin, that means we're on the side of the saints here. <laughs> yes, it has been the dominant view during the Reformation period, and in fact, for a period, 17th, and perhaps at least from the confessional reform circles, 18th century and 19th century for that matter, it is definitely a minority view now for a variety of reasons. Among scholars. Yeah, counting noses probably is not going to solve all our problems. But yeah, we do see examples of some who were not. We see variations during the Reformation period of individuals who might have slightly different perspectives on Romans chapter 7, but it, it was the dominant position for some time, not so much anymore. But I think where, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record again, where I think all of us agree is the role of Romans 7 in light of the law. Law cannot save, and law cannot sanctify. And on that score, I think most of us would agree. I think it's helpful for us to 
sort of meditate together with the listener who is undergoing this existential struggle with sin. And I think it's helpful and encouraging maybe in an ironic way, to know that Paul isn't really teaching and Scripture isn't teaching perfectionism, not to release us from our obligation to struggle against sin manfully, as we once might have said, and to seek mortification and to pray for and struggle towards vivification, right, putting to death the old man and making alive of the new. But it is liberating in a way, I think, to know that we do that in the context of this struggle that Paul outlines in Romans 7. And then I never want to leave us in Romans 7. As we, you know, wrestle through Romans 7, we want to go to the doxology at the end of the chapter there, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh." in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So take us out with some words of encouragement for the struggling believer. When you refer to a struggling believer, I'm not referring to just generic listeners that are out there, but I'm referring to myself, and perhaps this is something I would be saying to myself as well. And I think Paul's direction in there is something that we need to be reminded of. We need to trust in the Lord that He is doing the good work in us, as He has promised through His Son Christ and through the power of the Spirit, that daily He is working in us to sanctify. We on our own cannot. Willpower is not going to do so. God is the one who is at work within us. And and one thing that we need to remind ourselves is that we cannot see the work of God changing us on a daily basis. It's like I have kids, and many of you I'm sure do as well. As someone who lives and sees the kids every day, you don't see the change in them. Only those who haven't seen them for months come back and say, wow, that kid has grown up, gotten taller, gotten bigger, so much more talkative. And I, I, I do think sanctification is like that. Oftentimes, you don't see it, but the Lord is faithfully working in us by the power of the Spirit. And we trust that until the day Christ returns, he will work in us. And here, it's not up to our faithfulness, but to the faithfulness of God working in us that we trust. And then not only that, here, Scripture reminds us of what we ought to do, which is to be faithful in the means that he has given for us to grow. As we listen to the word faithfully proclaimed, as we turn to the Lord in prayer, as we read his word, you know, we may not notice the effects right away. It's like, you know, my wife cooks for me mostly three meals a day, and if you were to ask me what she fed me last week, I will not be able to tell you, but yet I know that it was probably something that was good, something that was healthy for me, that I needed, and that as I stand a week later, I stand here with energy because of it. And I think it works that way when you go through these means, that you're not looking for some kind of titillating sensations. You're not looking for some overwhelming out of sensory experience, simply as you tend to these means, you come to recognize that these are the feedings that you require for you to continue to grow in your perspective of God, perspective of self, the growing desire 
growing thankfulness before the Lord as you continue to live your lives. And I think through it, God teaches us, guides us, strengthens us, motivates us to grow. And I pray that for all of us who are in this journey together, trusting that the Lord who is faithful will continue to work within us, will be able to find great joy and thankfulness in the work that's being done already. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.